because it keeps government on its toes, so to speak. It means government can't be too arbitrary in the decisions it makes. Equally, of course, having the government itself divided into different branches, that is really, really crucial because they disempower the very government that imposes laws on us and they constrain it from actually imposing us. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. As you will know by now, I recently published a new book called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Please buy the book and read along with these weekly installments of me telling you about some of the core arguments. We are now up to chapter 10. We are more than halfway through, I promise. And this chapter is about a subject that is close to my heart and will, I believe, be close to many of your hearts, and that is free speech. Free speech has historically been a value embraced by the left. Frederick Douglass rightly called it the dread of tyrants. And yet the value has come to be coded as being conservative or right-wing in the United States over the course of the last decade. That, I think, is a profound mistake. Once you understand truly why we need to fight for preservation of free speech laws and more broadly a culture of free speech, I think you will see why it should be a value embraced and championed by the left. Now, there's many beautiful arguments for free speech that have historically been made. And the one that I love reading the most comes from John Stuart Mill in, on liberty. In chapter two, he talks about the fact that We need free speech in order to be able to pursue the truth. That does not mean that it's guaranteed to come about from the marketplace of ideas, but that at least the possibility of recognizing the truth is preserved when expressions of certain viewpoints are not snuffed out. He also talks beautifully about why we should tolerate even beliefs that turn out to be wrong, because we need genuine disagreement in order to hold our beliefs as living truths rather than dead dogmas. I think Mill is right on these points, and yet I worry But Mill and other traditional defenders of free speech emphasize too much the good things that can come from free speech and not enough the terrible things that happen when you cease to have free speech. And those are the things that I focus on in my chapter. Among other things, I argue that it is a strange mistake to believe that limitations on free speech somehow protect the most vulnerable in society. Virtually by definition, The people who will get to decide about what is kosher and what is forbidden, what you can say and what you cannot say, are going to be powerful. Whether they are uh, members of a government censorship bureau, whether they are the leaders of some tech company, or whether they are on some university speech committee. And particularly at a time of rising far-right populism, it is deeply and thoroughly naive to think that in some systematic way, the people who make decisions about censorship are always going to be on the side of the good and the noble. If today you might be censored for saying something that is read as being offensive to a minority group, tomorrow you might be censored for saying something that seems insufficiently patriotic. The second key thing is that one of the fundamental promises of democracy is that even if you lose power, you can 
go home and keep arguing and advocating for your causes and perhaps you have a chance of being re-elected four years later. And that is one of the things that makes it somewhat easier to maintain the most fundamental aspect of our democratic systems, one that is under serious attack right now, and that is that free and fair elections decide who gets to rule. If you fear that leaving power is also going to make it harder for you to advocate for your points of view, you are less likely to accept this basic mechanism of democracy. So those are some of the reasons why we need to preserve free speech. But it's not enough to fight against some of the very restrictive hate speech laws and other things that have now been put on the books in many European countries. It is not enough to try and preserve the Latin the spirit of the First Amendment in the United States. We also need to build a culture of free speech, one that is threatened at a time when many people I have lunch with say to me in nearly casual terms after making some anodyne remark, of course, I would never say this publicly. So what does it take to build that culture of free speech? Well, first of all, some key institutions that particularly prize the pursuit of truth, that particularly prize intellectual discussion, should bind themselves by laws that emulate the First Amendment, and that is particularly true of universities. Secondly, we must break the power that private companies and corporations and actors now have over political speech. It is totally unacceptable that banks, for example, dissolve the accounts of their customers because of supposedly offensive speech in which they have engaged. My ability to have a bank account, to maintain a website, to take a train or use a plane must not be dependent on the views I expressed. And we should have clear regulation to ensure that. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, it is up to all of us to maintain a culture of genuine free speech on social media and in our private associations and environments. Freedom of association is, of course, a core liberal right. And you can stop being friends with somebody, you can stop inviting somebody to dinner because they say something you find offensive. Being criticized in social media is not a form of cancel culture. I've been criticized plenty. I have not so far been canceled. But as Jonathan Rauch, a friend of his podcast, has pointed out in a really smart uh, book on this subject, there are hallmarks of an unhealthy cancel culture that go beyond those forms of criticism. They include elements such as punitiveness, where pushback goes beyond critique to firing people, having deep social consequences, revoking honors retrospectively. They have to do with deplatforming, where because of a view you expressed at some point in some context, you are no longer able to express yourself in other contexts or in other topics. They include things like forms of organization where you have these open letters and these pile-on effects to denounce in authoritative ways somebody for their views. And they include forms of secondary boycott, where you don't just try to deplatform a particular individual, you then try to make radioactive anybody who publicly associates with that individual. 
Now, these are hallmarks of cancel culture. Some forms of them might be justified in certain kind of contexts. But they are things that we should read as warning signs. When you're asked to participate in these kinds of sanctions, think very, very hard about them. And when you believe them to be wrong, when you believe them to be undermining a culture of genuine free speech, try to speak up against them. Free speech is a fundamentally progressive value, preserving the ability of a truly marginalized to express themselves. We must defend it in those terms. My guest today is Philip Pettit. Philip, one of the most important living political philosophers, is the L.S. Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University and the author, among other things, of Republicanism and, most recently, The State. One of Philip's core contribution is to think about the ways in which people, in order to be free, need to be safe from forms of domination, uh, not just from actual interference in their lives, but from a sense that what they can do and whether they might be punished depends on forces that are arbitrary and over which they have no control. In this conversation, we puzzle through what that means how significant a departure that constitutes from how we usually think about freedom and whether this contribution is best understood as a clarification of or a challenge to liberalism. Philip Pettit, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you. One thing that I talk a lot about on this podcast is the idea of liberalism and philosophical liberalism. Persuasion understands itself in many ways as a defender of liberal values. Now, you come from a tradition that is related but subtly distinct, that of republicanism. And I think one of the interesting things we can work through in this conversation is how crucial that distinction is for the purposes of our politics in 2023, where we agree and where we might start to possibly disagree. So why don't you explain to readers who may not know what republicanism is, what the core nature, what the core claims of the republican tradition are, and how they, to ask a very undergraduate question, compare and contrast with a tradition of liberalism. Well, on the compare, the main thing to be said is that they both prioritize the ideal of freedom. So the language of freedom is very much to the fore in each way of talking. On the contrast side, the first contrast, I think, to make really is historical, which is that what most people will identify now as a continuing Republican tradition goes back to classical Rome, to the Roman Republic. Whereas the liberal tradition, so-called, I mean, it really is only identifies itself, it only appears, I would say, in a distinctive form from the late uh, 1700s. So that's a real point of contrast. So the contrast, though, in conceptual terms, is mainly a contrast in their way of understanding freedom. The uh, way of understanding freedom that the Romans had very much, although, of course, it's underwent development and in its interpretation, its application and so on, but the way that they understood it was that in order to be free, you basically had to be free of a boss, so to speak. It was just having a boss, having a master, having a dominus 
in the Latin phrase that made you unfree. And they they made this, so to speak, visible or salient by a particular image, which was the slave whose master is very kindly, uh, gentle, gives the slave more or less carte blanche, is very gullible anyhow that the slave can run rings around the master. And for the Romans, that person, though they could act as they wish almost across a whole range of choices, were not free because they, well, they suffered what the Romans called dominatio, which meant simply the existence of a master. Now, of course, the master didn't actually interfere with them, but he still made them unfree because whatever they were free to do, whatever they had a choice in doing, they were free to do only because the master allowed them. So it was ultimately the master's will that remained in charge. And that's a very important idea in this long Republican tradition, which begins in Rome, as I say, but it continues through, for example, the northern Italian cities of the high high Middle Ages, the Renaissance cities, into the Dutch Republic, the Polish Republic, the English Republic of the 17th century, and of course the American Republic in particular, and Revolution, War of Independence of the 18th century, as well as in the French. In these traditions, they identify freedom very much with not being subject to the will of another, even another who is a gentle master. So, for example, the Americans, one of the great sort of complaints in the 1760s that you find is that while the British Parliament, and they focused on the British Parliament as the master, while the British Parliament has actually lifted the Stamp Act, and in that way proved itself kindly, in an associated act, they declared that they had the right to introduce that sort of taxation as they wished, the right and the authority. So as a way of asserting, we are the boss, even though we're in this instance proving to be a kindly boss or a kindly master. In the rival classical Republican tradition, and nowadays I think we'd say neo-Republican, maybe libertarian, in that classical Republican tradition, the idea was, To be free meant simply you weren't actually interfered with. That made it easier, in a way, to be free, because you could be free then and yet have a master who could interfere if they wished in the life of the person. And that did not make you unfree. And of course, that suited the purposes of lots of people in that period, because it enabled them to say, for example, that no matter how harsh a factory owner was, for example, a manager dealing with his or her workers, with their workers, even though they had the power of throwing their weight around, as far as they didn't actually throw their weight around, those workers were perfectly free. Someone like uh, Jefferson recoiled from that idea, didn't even want industry in North America, because he thought the factory regime inevitably put workers under the will of the employer, who could push, throw his weight around, so to speak, without danger of the workers moving or going away because there wasn't anywhere else much to go away to that was at least acceptable. Let me puzzle through this. I find this really interesting and I thought a lot about these themes when I was an undergraduate and an early graduate student. I think clearly the social and political ideal of not suffering domination is a very important and attractive one. You can see that in stark examples 
like an enslaved person in the Roman Republic who may have had a kindly owner who allows them to go about their lives relatively freely. But obviously, it would be strange to call them free because the fact of being ultimately subject to the arbitrary will of somebody who literally has property in them makes them a paradigmatic example of what it is to be unfree. I think in a much more kind of less extreme way, but that perhaps we can relate to today, I always end up thinking of the UK version of The Office. The employees of David Brent are often free to do as they wish. They have a lot of liberties, perhaps more liberties than they should have in a well-functioning office. But because they are subject to the arbitrary whim of a narcissistic boss, they chafe under this real sense and feeling of domination. And I think that that gives a good sense of what the social concern is here. I guess there's then two questions, right? One is, how much of a challenge is that to traditional philosophical notions of freedom? And then there's a broader question of how much of a challenge is that to the historical tradition of liberalism that a lot of people today are actually motivated by. Now, again, insofar as some philosophers have defined freedom merely as non-interference, I think you are right that you can come to these examples and say, hey, here's an example of a worker at David Brent's office or in a more extreme example of an enslaved person in the Roman Republic. They're not being interfered with, but surely they're not free. And so that philosophical conception of freedom as non-interference is incomplete. We need to change or amend or supplement it. As a matter of going through liberal philosophical tradition, I guess I wonder whether there are any liberals on your accounting. Because somebody like John Stuart Mill, one of the classic liberals, talks deeply about domination in texts like On the Subjection of Women, where he says, hey, you know, even if I as a husband want to renounce my rights over my wife that English law gave me in the 19th century, because I'm not capable of doing that, it changes the nature of our relationship in a way that does damage to it, but actually does damage to my ability to live in a relationship of equals to somebody. So John Stuart Mill certainly recognized, I would argue, the social ideal of non-domination. And when you're looking at the core liberal freedoms that liberal states have granted their citizens, certainly in the economic realm and other realms, there's things where we might want to supplement what they do. But some of the core rights, the First Amendment in the United States, the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of assembly, the right to freedom of worship, all of those surely are not just meant to ensure non-interference, but they are motivated by non-domination. So I guess, how much is this a way of redescribing what the liberal tradition is and how it should understand itself? And how much is it actually a challenge to the liberal tradition? Well, first of all, the American Constitution, as we have it written in 1787 or so, it, it does reflect, I think, very long tradition of Republican thinking, as all of the founders were well aware, constantly refer back to the tradition. You know, when they campaigned, in many cases, they actually wore a toga. You know, they were that aware of the Roman connection and that that's where they were coming from. And another side comment just about what you said, John Stuart Mill, I would not describe as a classical liberal, nor did he, would he have described himself in those terms. And the phrase in those days that he would have used and would have used on was that he was a modern liberal. And modern liberalism, as they used in the 19th century, was decidedly a different sort of view, really, from the classical liberalism as it 
later came to be called, of the early part of the 1800s and the, the very late 1700s. Actually, it's ironic. The way of thinking that I've described as the neoliberal or the classical liberal way of thinking, it actually appears first, I think, most clearly in the work of Bentham of Jeremy Bentham, when he explicitly says, what is it to be free? And says it is to be free of restraint and constraint. And he concludes from that, that actually that means that the law itself actually makes you unfree because it restrains you, constrains you, and so on. He, of course, was a utilitarian, so freedom mattered only as a component in overall utility welfare, and that's what he was interested in. But his line on freedom appears to have been taken up by a range of thinkers who wanted then to say, as Republicans had always said, that the really high and almost the only value is freedom. And now where the Republicans had said the only value might be freedom in the sense of non-domination, that actually supported a very rich policy package. We can come back to that if you like in a moment. But once you say freedom is the be-all and end-all, and I mean by that freedom is non-interference, being that alone, then that gives you a very, very different policy package. And maybe we can talk about those two policy packages to bring out the difference between these two ways of conceptualizing freedom. On the word liberal, though, let me just say, I mean, the, the word itself, indeed the word Republican, is also problematic because, for example, most of the English thinkers and theorists that really influenced the Americans in great part and they did not describe themselves often as Republicans after 1660 when the king, and they described themselves as Commonwealth men often, for example, because the word Republic had suggested we were against a king, whereas by that point they'd come to think not having a king is really not all that important in Republicanism. And that's just what's important is not to have a king who's like a slave owner, you know, who's got uh, that degree of charge. So the word liberal is really hard to interpret often. And it is worth remembering it only came into usage in the early 1800s in the sense in which we use it. That is a frustration I often have, in part just because in everyday political language today, the word liberal means such different things. It's a trivial but an important point. When I went around for a good number of years after 2015, 2016, warning about the threat that populists pose to liberal democracy, no matter how often we emphasize to an American audience that the way that I'm using liberal is not coterminous with left wing, the reaction from conservative listeners and television viewers and readers who I wanted to read, who I wanted to avert of a danger of somebody like Donald Trump would be, well, we don't want liberal democracy, we're conservatives. You go to France and suddenly the valence of liberal is the opposite, right? They say, we, we don't want liberal because that means being laissez-faire on the economy we are leftists. So I agree with that frustration. And of course, the term Republican has similar problems because it refers to a political party at this point in the United States, as well as in France, Le Républicain. So you get in hot water with that as well. But to go deeper just for a moment about sort of the stakes of this debate in terms of a liberal tradition. And then I want to go to discuss some of those sort of what follows from this different conception, which I think is where a lot of the interest lies in this conversation. Aren't we a little bit in danger of a no true Scotsman fallacy here, which is to say that, you know, if John Stuart Mill doesn't count as a liberal in the sense of failing to be a Republican in the right ways, and the founding fathers don't count as liberals in the sense of failing to be Republicans today, 
then it feels like to some extent we've been reduced to a dispute over words, right? Which is to say that I think of myself as a liberal today because I think that for all of its flaws, the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights and those founding documents help to point the way towards a better society, which we have in part realized and which we have to do more work to realize more fully, right? I think of myself as a liberal because John Stuart Mill in his writings on freedom of speech and on liberty, but also on things like the subjection of women has given us a lot of understanding of what the social ideal of equality would look like in a free, diverse society. Now, if you convince me that they're not really liberals, but rather Republicans, I guess perhaps I'm willing to concede the point, but it doesn't actually move me from my political position. So in the liberal tradition, as I might sketch it, that runs through people like the Founding Fathers and like John Stuart Mill, is there something that's missing that Republicans can add to it? Or sort of what is the shortcoming, other than perhaps in terms of the word they use for themselves, in a liberal tradition that sees itself as being rooted in people like Alexander Hamilton and John Stuart Mill? The words are certainly a bit of a problem. That's why, in a way, I was planning to talk about two different policy packages, you know, directions you would be taken. Um, I should say that uh, there's a recent book by Dan Lehman on Locke, and there's a book by an ex-student of my own, um, John DiUlio, on Mill. And both of these books argue that, look, these thinkers are essentially in the, or people sometimes speak nowadays of the, the neo-Republican or civic Republican tradition, the tradition that I, for example, certainly identify with. Maybe we should just put aside those arguments. I mean, the tradition I hail, or think very well of, is certainly embodied in the American founders and is embodied in, to very extent, in Locke and in Mill. But of course, a figure like Mill, for example, he has much more to him than what traditional Republicans had. What he does really is take the notion of freedom, I would say, as non-domination, as it often is, for example, in the subordination of women and various of his other works, as John DiUlio shows. But he also had a strong commitment to sort of romantic individualism. Now, that is a different strand of thinking from what had been there in those earlier thinkers. So, these are very original figures, and there isn't a particular set of ideas that you can find in all of them exhaustive of what they said. They obviously aren't. Uh, so I didn't tell you that. So I think that was clarifying, but let's go away from the historical debate over which term to use and where to locate whom and say, all right, so if you think of freedom today as I think many people do, as non-interference. Like, you are free when there isn't somebody telling you what to do. You are free as long as the state isn't passing certain laws and regulations that constrain your freedom of action. That is one way of thinking about freedom, that you label freedom as non-interference. What is it that that gets wrong? And how is it that that leads us astray in terms of what you're calling these packages of policy? How can we capture more of what it actually takes for us to be meaningfully free? And how can we hopefully find social and political policies that are going to create a better country, a better world, if we embrace the idea that freedom involves non-domination, not just non-interference? Good. Well, let's say take two areas of packages of policy, so to speak. One is you might call the area of the social area, the other the democratic or political area. Now, suppose in the social area, you're wondering about 
what are the constraints that should be laid on people and how they treat one another are laid on corp on private bodies like corporations and how they are churches or whatever and how they should treat individuals. Now, if you think of freedom as uh, non-interference, the tendency is to think, well, so far as possible, we should let things rip. In other words, we should let people just choose as they wish. Now, of course, immediately we realize, well, of course, people can do harm to one another, so we need to constrain by a harm principle, you know, can do as they wish, so long as they're not harming others. But then there are further sorts of actions, like actions that have side effects that harm others, maybe with constraints on those as well. And and that's all fine, and that's certainly within this policy package. But for example, when it comes to issues like that of social security, or, you know, should people be helped in order to educate their children, in order to be medically insured, in order to be judicially insured of having representation if they have to go before the courts or whatever. And it's not clear why on this particular ideal, there should be that sort of, let's call it security legislation that enables people to deal with these disadvantages they suffer. And in the, let's call it neoliberal, in this neoliberal package, you're allowed, so to speak, to go beyond the ideal of letting things rip only in order to guard against, so to speak, public disruption, public disorder, you know, people actually dying or whatever. But it's an emergency type of backup legislation that you that you want on that front. Now, if you think on the contrary, that freedom really requires non-domination, that is to say security against others. A uh, first question, of course, is how much security should we get against others? And I've always said, and I argue that this is in line with the tradition, that you have enough security against others insofar as you're each is enabled to look others in the eye without reason for fear or deference. Um, that's a sort of rough and ready test. But now in order for people to be able to live in that sort of equality and be secured as others are secured under the law against private suspect domination, they're going to have to have access to educational resources, of course, and emergency resources, else they're basically dependent on the will of philanthropy or whatever it might be. So you're going to have to have a state that enables people to enjoy that status of being able to look others in the eye without fear of difference. And that means you have to have, for example, unemployment and assurance against failure of employment. You've got to have, I think, quite strict laws governing the employment relationship, which is a relationship where there's a certain asymmetry of power. And, you know, lots of labor law nowadays is actually being guided by the neo-Republican ideal of non-domination. There's quite a bit of writing on that. For example, the, the right to fire at will, which a lot of American employers enjoy, I would say that gives the employer such an asymmetry of power over the employee who's always going to be unwilling to be fired. Transaction costs are huge. You've got to find another job. It's a bad mark on your record and so on. Uh, that the manager, employer, whatever, is in a position where they can throw their weight around, you know, without fear, so to speak, of, of losing the, of the person leaving the job. And, you know, I think that the workplace in America is a place where there is a lot of domination. I mean, it's not like a slave owner's domination. It's not wide and it's not deep. 
Um, it's not wide in the sense it just governs the workplace. It's not deep in the sense that it involves constraints, but not very, very deep constraints. But I think that is a, a site, for example, where these two ideals give very, very different lessons. And that is very convincing to me. I have a few thoughts on this. One is about how much of this can be solved with regulation and how much this is a question of broader culture. And perhaps sometimes in a paradoxical way. Get autobiographical for a moment. I grew up in Germany and went to school there and then came to university in Cambridge in England, where I studied history with some of the people who inspired this work, people like Quentin Skinner, who uncovered uh, in the mode of an intellectual historian, some of these ideas that you've advanced in, in a more analytical and philosophical mode. And one of the things I loved about being at Cambridge is that my teachers there taught me to look them in the eye and contest what they were saying. After going to school in an environment where my uh, high school teachers were mostly displeased if I disagreed with them or something or wanted to quibble with something they said. I remember in the first week of term having a one-on-one -on -one supervision and my supervisor saying, well, Yasha, you know, I mean, you've summarized these readings I gave you well and that's all great, but what's your opinion? What do you think? And that to me was striking. Nobody had encouraged me to do that in my education. But oddly, if you analyzed the rules and regulations of Trinity College Cambridge, it was an incredibly hierarchical place. The fellows of a college sat at high table. They were sitting raised above the students in a separate area of a dining hall when they were having lunch and dinner. There was beautiful lawns in the middle of these medieval courtyards. And they were allowed to walk across the lawn. And I, as a student, was not. If I did, a porter would reprimand me in very firm terms, right? Now, one thing I did during college was to do a lot of theater. I thought I wanted to be a theater director. And I went back to Germany and worked in a professional theater for a year as an assistant director. And I thought this was going to be my career. The deal was that you do that for two years, then you get a production of your own. And if that goes well, your career is sort of launched. I hated it. And I hated it for various reasons, including the fact that for everybody was buddy-buddy, for everybody addressed each other by the informal address du rather than the formal address sie in Germany. Whatever we talked about, I was supposed to be differential to the director, not just when we talked about the details of the artistic production, which was fair enough, I was there to assist, but even when we talked about politics or football. Uh, there was a social expectation of deference. I could not look the director in the eye but that gave me this sort of strange sense of how do you create a culture where you can look each other in the eye? Because if you analyze the institutional setting from the outside, you would look at Cambridge and think, what a hierarchical place. And yet it did give me that freedom that I could sit across these very accomplished academics as an 18-year-old and say, I disagree with you. I think this. They were making me do that. They were encouraging me to do that. Whereas in the setting of the theater in Germany, where we we're all sort of sitting around having beers and pretending to be friends, I felt that I had to help back. But if I disagreed with my boss about his analysis of, of a sports game yesterday, that would not go well for me. Well, let me talk about the first point you made about culture and regulation. And um, I think culture is deeply important in a case like this, but I think that law and culture, you know, support one another. So, for example, in the employment area, I think it's, uh, it's very important that there are appropriate laws. For example, that there isn't a right to fire without cause, that 
you at least have some sort of procedure laid down, you know, that an employer, at least with an employee who's been there for a certain time, has to go through in order to establish that it's okay to let this worker go. And that need not be absolutely um, horrifically difficult or anything, but it's just that it puts in that sort of block. Equally, I think there should be laws that, at least in many areas, do not impose a no-compete clause. You know, in lots of areas of employment in North America now, as you're aware, um, lots of employment clauses say, basically, if you leave voluntarily, you can't work in the same industry for a certain amount of time. That's extremely restrictive, and it disempowers the worker. Or an abridgment clause, as uh, arbitration clause, as many employment contracts have now too, which requires that if there's a dispute between the employer and the employee, it should go to arbitration, not to a court. That effectively blocks the possibility of class action against the employer. There are all sorts of laws like that that need changing, I think. One quick clarification on that. I'm trying to map that back on for the listener to the terms of non-interference and and non-domination. It seems to me that some of those laws you could oppose on grounds of non-interference as well, right? I mean, when you have a non-compete clause, what that means is I quit my job at McDonald's. I want to go work at Burger King. And some of these non-compete clauses in the United States now, I agree with your strong opposition to them, don't just cover highly specialized professional workers with insider knowledge. They cover those kind of fast food workers, right? That is clearly wrong. But that is a form of interference, right? It is the state telling you, I'm going to uphold this contract that means you can't go and work for Burger King. So it's a form of interference. So you could have an argument against this on grounds of interference. Is the worry that even if you can get there from on non-interference grounds, it's not expressing the full extent of what's wrong with this? That really the harm, the wrong-making feature of a non-compete clause is not just that the state is going to stop you from working for Burger King. It's that it allows McDonald's to dominate you while you work at McDonald's. Perhaps you prefer to work at McDonald's, but if there was no non-compete clause, you would be able to look your employer in the eye in a different way from the situation where you know you can't go across the road to Burger King to work there, and so you have to be more submissive in how you deal with your boss at McDonald's. Okay, so let me take that question about whether the non-interference ideal would equally oppose, so to speak, that sort of possibility in an employer's part of introducing no complete clause. It raises another issue which is slightly orthogonal but still bound up with the division we've been talking about. In the neoliberal tradition, as I think we should call it, probably neoliberal rather than liberal, in the neoliberal tradition, the view is that if you've entered a contract and signed up to a contract, then that means that anything that happens under the terms of the contract is okay because you have given, signed up to it, you, so to speak, have indicated it's by your will that whatever happens under the contract happens under the contract. Okay, in the other Republican tradition, there's a very different view of contract, which is that contracts can be contract to enter a relationship within which there is domination or power. And in that tradition, you'd be very critical of a contract and that enabled one person in the contract to have this sort of dominating power over another. So that the ideal of freedom is non-domination. Now, there are, I'm missing some premises here, but it's pretty clear the idea, I think. In that tradition, the idea of, of just sort of saying, well, the contract sanctifies all, even though it was done last year or five years ago or whatever, that's simply not acceptable. 
you've got to have a relationship within which there is not domination. That's the big difference there. And it turns on this issue about how far contract uh, releases, so to speak, the person who's given power um, to exercise that power just as, just as they wish. But if I can just return to the culture uh, law thing that you mentioned, I think it's important that the laws are introduced of this kind that deny these powers to the, or at least restrict these powers on the lawyer's part. But equally, it's, it's very important that the culture among the workers should be that of standing together, for example, as far as they, they have a common cause, you know, as they often have in many of these cases, and that they're enabled to act as a group. Um, usually against a much more powerful employer, often a corporate employer. And the right of unionization is absolutely, it seems to me, sacrosanct to that extent, to organize. And, you know, we've seen that decline massively in the United States, and there's a very strict correlation uh, worldwide between the decline in unionization and the decline in, in the wages of those who otherwise would be unionized. And, but unions bring with them a culture, and that, in traditional terms, was a very powerful culture in the United States in the late 19th century, a culture of opposition and so on. And their catch was freedom, because they felt that they were white slaves. You know, that was, by the way, a Republican phrase used by Jefferson at one point, which was taken over later by European socialists. But the idea of the wage slave was someone who had signed up to a contract under which the employer had this. Anyhow, we were talking about this social bunch of policies, and I was illustrating the difference of the ideals in the employment case. There are other examples too, but I can't resist commenting on Cambridge, if you'll allow me that, because uh, I also spent some time there as a postdoctoral research fellow at Trinity Hall. I do agree that the high table, which is, of course, centuries old, the tradition of the high table, uh, replicated in different settings, of course, not just colleges, and the low table has that sort of symbolism of uh, power, so to speak, and the right to walk on the, on the grass, you know, is equally the same symbolism. Myself, I think it doesn't carry with it the sort of power that might dominate, so to speak. Now, onto deference. I think what's really important is that people don't have to defer to one another out of fear of the power of the other person in their lives. Of course, people defer, maybe out of respect or admiration, or maybe out of a feeling of, this person could do me great good, you know? And obviously, law and no social structure can put that aside. So it's deference on the grounds of the fear of the, of the other. I remember one debate I was involved in with someone who's defending Chinese meritocracy. And at the end of the debate, he said, Philip, what you don't understand, and these people all understand, is that we like kowtowing in China. You know, we do it out of, out of admiration and love of the elderly and so on. All for that, of course, I'm old enough now to get it. But uh, as I said in response then, it seems to be clearly right, it's fine kowtowing, provided you're not forced to kowtow, you know, provided there isn't a relationship that means that is the stamp on your relationship with this person. It doesn't mean that you can't look them in the eye without fear or deference because of their excessive power. I think the relationship between institutional power and rules and culture is complicated. They have to both work in the right way 
to create an absence of domination. But the way they do that might be intricate. When I look back at Cambridge, I wonder whether these external shows of hierarchy are part of what allowed my supervisor to have a self-confidence to say, go challenge me, go push back against what I say, because if you annoy me too much and I need to rediscover my uh, amour propre, I can just walk across the lawn and let you stand on the side of it. So there's a kind of weird paradoxical relationship here. But then there was important institutional elements that actually encourage students to be less afraid to speak up. One of those that I find striking is that your exams in Cambridge were marked anonymously by somebody who didn't know who you were and who you likely had never met. Whereas, of course, in American colleges, it is usually the person teaching your class who is also grading your paper. And I think that is an underappreciated element of domination in American undergraduate education or graduate education, uh, where, of course, also you need to win the favor of your dissertation advisor in terms of what they say in their references, which will determine whether you get an academic job or not. And I think the clearest element of this institutionally in American academia is the tenure process, which is one of the reasons why all things considered on grounds of academic freedom, we probably need a tenure system but it also cows people for a very long part of their academic career. And the most obvious case of people in these institutions not being able to look each other in the eye is an untenured assistant or associate professor dealing with a senior faculty member. And that's interesting, particularly in departments that prize themselves in equality, but have this very strong form of domination in their midst. I agree. I think there are those powers which are in academia in America, for example, that might well be moderated. And there are ways in which they might be moderated. When I came to America to teach in my earlier years there, um, I always reminded students that if you ever feel I've dealt unfairly, we'll refer this to an independent examiner, because I was shocked at the fact that I was had the power, so to speak. Of I wonder about one other thing, because I do think that Talking and thinking about domination is a very fruitful way of recasting some of the political conversations we had. In the book I just published, The Identity Trap, I talk in part about what it takes for us to maintain a culture of free speech. And I end up worrying in this context, as well as other contexts, about things like at-will employment. Because it means that your employer can fire you for inconvenient political speech when they want. And so I have a set of rules and regulations I suggest in the book to curb the corporate power over political activity of individuals. I don't think that corporations should be able to fire the employees for political speech as long as it happens outside of a workplace. Obviously, if you're a server in a restaurant who starts to proselytize for your political or religious cause while serving people, that that should be a firing offense at some point. But if you're doing that in your private space, it shouldn't be. And I think that providers of key public services that might be private providers, but that provide services that most citizens need for key functions of their life should not be allowed to sever their relationships with you on political grounds either. A bank should not be allowed to stop allowing you to have a bank account. A airline should not be allowed to tell you that you're not allowed to fly. An internet payment processor should not be allowed to refuse doing business with you on the basis of your political views. 
And as I'm reflecting on this argument, I am thinking perhaps I should have reread some of your work just before writing the chapter because the core concern here does in part seem to be domination. It seems to be not just that some people will be unfairly punished, but about the fact that in our social and political life in the last 10 years, people have often felt that there's arbitrary lines that get them into hot water. It's not clear where those lines are. And even if it's relatively rare that your account will be demonetized, that you lose your bank account, as has happened to some people in the United Kingdom, etc., the fear of that makes you sufficiently apprehensive as to hold back. And that actually seems like a core case of domination. I'm delighted you. No, I absolutely back what you just said, I'd say in that book, about these protections. I think they're vital. And I think so we were talking about how these two positions designate, let's say, neoliberal and neo-republican, put it that way, how they come apart, or they both celebrate freedom. So neoliberal here, just to keep track of it for listeners, being non-interference and neo-republican being the more ambitious value of non-domination. Exactly, yes. And where liberal in the ordinary usage wobbles so much that it's important to use neoliberal rather than and neo-republican, indeed, too. Now... That illustrates the difference of policy in the social area, and it only illustrates it. There are loads of other areas of social policy, that is to say, the policy governing how people treat one another, how they're treated by corporations and so on, and to illustrate that difference. But I mentioned when you challenged me earlier about not just talking about names, and that a second as where area of policies is the democratic or the political and that bears on the, those laws that govern how the lawmakers relate to us, the law takers, you know, the decision takers, so to speak, how the decision makers relate to us. And here this very interesting thing was people who go the neoliberal way, traditionally, almost all say, well, look, law may be necessary, but law is essentially an affront against liberty. It's sort of, you know, depriving us of liberty. Now, it may give us more liberty overall than it deprives us of. It may perpetrate less interference in constraining us than it prevents in constraining other people from interfering with us. That's, that's the sort of line. Now, I think that, that that is very different from the near Republican line because on that line and on the classical Republican line going way back, you're free only in virtue of the law and the norms and mores of the society, giving you security or protection against others in the society, and indeed giving you also resources as in the social security legislation we were talking about. You're only free in virtue of the law. It's that that enables you to look others in the eye without reason for fear or deference. So we shouldn't be loath to have a state. We shouldn't be reluctant about having a state. We depend on states in order within a given country, putting aside the international relations and immigration problems like that. We depend on the state in order individually to enjoy the sort of freedom that might be described as freedom as non-domination. However, of course, the lawmakers, they can also abuse the power that we give them to make laws. They can begin to make laws, for example, that that run against the interests of a whole sector of the society if the majority support them. They may begin to make laws that 
suit the cronies that support them financially or whatever, and they don't really suit anybody else, but they can get away with by covering them, smothering them, so to speak, swaddling them in, the, in, a, <laughs> in clothes of appropriate rhetoric. Uh, we, we all know that. So what's really important, too, is that while the state is entitled to interfere with people, that it doesn't interfere in a dominating way. The point is, if you think freedom is non-domination, then there are two radical conclusions that make a difference with neoliberalism. One is that you can be unfree without being interfered with. That's the case we talked about, the gentle master. But another result is that you can be interfered with without being dominated. So, for example, those in government if we really have sufficient control over the way laws are passed, where they're imposed and so on, I mean, this is very ideal, I agree. But if we have that sort of control, we the ordinary decision takers, then while they would be entitled to make laws, they'd be entitled to make laws on terms, so to speak, that we lay down. Let me ask you a question about this, because I think that there's two different ways of thinking about this. Clearly, there are some forms of interference that may be justified, that may be good. So if you are standing on a street corner threatening people and you know punching every 10th person who walks past, and finally the police turns up and restrains you from doing that, that is certainly interfering with your actions. And I think all of us would applaud that your actions are being interfered with, right? In order to sustain a sensible public order, we need to constrain you from what you've been doing, hopefully in a humane way, da, 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 but it needs to stop. Now, one way of putting this is to say that we're not interfering with your freedom at all, because this is what's required for a polity in which nobody's being dominated, including the passers-by who otherwise would be scared to exercise their freedom of movement. And so therefore, we should not think of this as an interference of your freedom at all. Isn't the most straightforward way of putting this that, no, no, you, we are interfering with the freedom of a person shouting on the street, standing on the street, punching people and threatening people. It's just a justified restriction of their freedom. And perhaps that a defender our freedom of non-interference might say, is a better way of putting it because we're not defining that interference out of existence. We need to recognize that there's something to be justified here, that we are interfering with the freedom of this person, and that is, so insofar as it goes, something we should be concerned about. Now, in this case, it's amply justified because of considerations on the other side of a ledger. But if you embrace merely the language of non-domination, you end up being incapable of recognizing that you are interfering with somebody's freedom. And that might allow you to justify ever more extreme forms of interference and not just say they're legitimate, but say, actually, this is what true freedom consists in. And you could turn into a pretty Orwellian state if this goes wrong, where you are robbing people of the language to even address the ways in which the state constrains the actions. I'm rippling here with <laughs> with objections. <laughs> Great is you to raise, though, Yasha. Thank you. Two ways of thinking about the case of the police interfering like that for the benefit of most people in the in the society in the streets, certainly. One is to think uh, in again the neoliberal way that this is a case, of course, of interference, and as such, is bad. 
but actually it's, as you said, justified interference because it involves less interference than it prevents from occurring. Because, uh, you know, the speaker might, going on indefinitely, interfere with all sorts of people, might even give rise to public disorder, you know, leading to real problems of interference. And, and the single act of interference of restraining that person actually involves less interference than it would prevent it. That's the sort of standard, standard way of thinking about it. And it's not a bad way of thinking about it. I mean, I'm not saying there's right and wrong here. But here's the Republican way of thinking about it to answer your Orwellian charge, which which really does get up my nose, if I can put it that way. In the Republican way of thinking, this, by the way, is a little bit like the contract issue I mentioned. It's one of those issues slightly to decide what we talk about, but it's really important, which is that in the Republican tradition, what's important is that people are not dominated. Um, so the focus moves to the person and the freedom of the person rather than the freedom of the specific choice. What's important if people are not to be dominated by other people, by corporations, or by the government itself, is that there should be a range of choices available to everybody, which they enjoy a pretty equal and adequate security in exercising. Let's call those choices basic liberties. And you are a free person in relation to other people and in relation to government, insofar as you are fairly robustly secured or protected in the exercise of those choices. Now, of course, it's true that in setting up a regime under which people can enjoy that sort of non-domination in relation to one another, there have to be laws that interfere, as I said. Interfere, for example, in preventing certain crimes occurring or interfere in ensuring that certain taxes are paid, for example. There have to be laws of that kind but those laws are not dominating laws if they're imposed in a manner that involves the people as a whole more or less equally sharing in control of those choices. So a government decides this is illegal, that's legal, this is criminal, that's non-criminal. They have to make decisions like that in government, of course. But insofar as those decisions are not made with arbitrary power, with just a power of making any decisions whatsoever, and so far as they're made only on terms that the people impose on those in government, to that extent they don't dominate the people under which they live. Now, the person put in jail because they've been causing public disorder or whatever, they remain a free person because they knew the terms under which they would enjoy uh, not being in jail, that they go with the laws, they remain a free person. But of course, it's true, their choice has been restricted. And we should, I don't mean to deny that. Okay, so there's a natural limitation on how far the state should go. It's got to maximize, I would say, the range of choices in which we can enjoy security against one another. And it's got to do this in a way that ties its own hands so that it does it only under the control of the people. Um, the question then, of course, is what are the modes of control of the people? And I'm sure we agree on this probably, but I think it's a big mistake to think that elections are the only mode of control. It's one strand in a, a quiver of strands or arrows of control that we should have in a decent democracy over government. That probably takes us on to a new topic, and I'm rather going on, so maybe... Let me ask you a very naive question, and I think it's one that some listeners may have in their minds. Why choose between these two different notions? Why think that one of these is 
the true gauge of what matters in the world or even of what helps to define freedom. And the other is Arrhenius. Why not say that when people interfere with you, your freedom is curtailed? But when you dominate it, your freedom is also curtailed. And in some situations, these things are going to point in the same direction, and those are relatively straightforward. And in some situations, these two are going to come apart. And in those moments, the fact that we can refer to those two different conceptual traditions actually helps to explain the situation precisely because it helps us to describe how it is complicated. Yes, we are interfering with a person standing on the street corner and shouting. And insofar as that goes, that's something we should be be concerned about. But this also helps to ensure that public order is maintained or that people don't feel dominated by random violent people in the street who might assault them and therefore even if they haven't been interfered with, refrain from going out in the street and that's also something that matters. Isn't sort of accepting both of those terms as being useful in their own right something that helps us bring out the subtlety of this situation in a way that just sort of switching from one to the other does not? This is a terrific conversation. These are great challenges. Okay, so I would say, why choose one rather than the other? My own view is that it's not a, a view of which is the more correct way of speaking. Of course, our ways of speaking only very loosely constrain how we think politically. Um, I think that we make the test, the, the choice between these two very different conceptions of freedom and these two very different political philosophies, because there are different policy packages attached to them, should be based on what John Rawls called the test of reflective equilibrium. I mean, each of us needs to ask ourselves this. Which approach would seem to support most of our considered judgments about what's just? Now, I would say that most people will think that it is unjust that a child should not be assured of a decent education. A worker shouldn't be assured of a certain degree of protection against an employer and so on. And so I say that the notion of freedom as non-domination would actually give you those results. It would support that. That's what's in favor here. Okay, now let's come back to the political area. We're talking about how to think about the relationship between government and citizens, the lawmaker and the lawtakers. And here, I think the same sort of issue arises. If you believe that freedom is just non-interference, right, then the interesting and very, I think, disturbing thing is that that doesn't actually give you an ideal of democracy. So, for example, Isaiah Berlin, who very much thought in terms of freedom as non-interference, says that there is no inherent connection between the ideal of freedom and the ideal of democracy or democratic control of the people over government. He argues, recognizes, and indeed there are a whole range of thinkers in the classical liberal tradition who say the same thing, that in even a very absolute sort of dictatorship, a dictator may not interfere very much with his or her people and may actually keep a degree of order in place such that people enjoy a good deal of non-interference at one another's hands. And actually, there may be less interference suffered, that's what even Berlin is willing to acknowledge, in the sense of non-interference, under a dictatorship than under a democracy. Now, if you think that freedom is non-domination, then, of course, you recoil from the idea of an absolute dictator of any kind, 
because he or she, they represent the ultimate dominator. And actually, this is mainly where the tradition of republicanism is argued against any form of absolute monarchy, which was the embodiment of the deep dictatorship. And so on the deal of freedoms, non-domination, yes, we've got to do something about the lawmakers and keeping the lawmakers, so to speak, under control, under our shared control. Ideally, we the citizenry, assuming everyone's included, we've got to keep the lawmakers under our control. Now, I would say that elections are very, very absolutely indispensable part of keeping lawmakers under control. But there's also contestation. You know, there's freedom of speech. Your ideal that you're talking about in the identity book, and there's freedom of association. There's all of that, which actually elections, I think, help to nurture. That's part of the reason why elections are so important. But the fact that people can protest like that via the courts, you know, via the media, on the streets or whatever, is really, really important because it keeps government on its toes, so to speak. It means government can't be, you know, too arbitrary in the decisions it makes. Um, equally, of course, having the government itself divided into different branches and having, in particular, having the judiciary independent of those in the administration and the uh, legislature and having, I would say, a central bank that is independent as well. These are all, having a Bureau of Statistics that's independent, having a congressional budget organ that is independent, those things are really, really crucial because they disempower the very government that imposes laws on us and they constrain it from actually imposing on us. Constitutional rights do the same thing. Rule of law does the same thing. So that's all part of the democratic package and the neo-republican ideal of non-domination would support that package. That's the main argument for it in this area, I would say. So this may not be a question about the deep structure of your views, but rather about how to apply them to something like the political system. But it is clear to me how one way of recasting the need for checks and balances, the need for constraints on the power, even of elected prime ministers and presidents, is in terms of non-domination. That if courts think, if judges on the Supreme Court think that they're going to be fired or replaced or that they're suddenly going to have 20 new colleagues if they rule against the president, then that may influence how they act in ways that are deeply damaging, that we need to empower actors within the state who are not the elected head of government or head of state to look them in the eye as equals and say, this is not within your authority, it's within my authority in order to sustain those democratic governments over time. And I think that's a nice way of recasting some of the concerns that I and others have had for a long time about the rise of authoritarian populists. Now, on the other hand, you might say, if the solution to this is the rise of all of these institutions that are not under the direct control of the government and that don't have a straightforward mechanism of democratic accountability, then that also allows a broader social milieu of highly educated, mostly affluent, relatively elite people to dominate ordinary citizens that the kinds of people who are on the Supreme Court and the kinds of people who are running the FTC and the kinds of people who negotiate trade treatments and trade treaties and so on and so forth, all the people 
who are in charge of those institutions you just praised, but accepted from direct democratic legitimacy, come from a very similar background. They probably all graduated Princeton, where you've taught for a very long time, or Harvard, where graduate school, and so on. Right? Not all of them, but many of them. And so in protecting against one form of domination, aren't we opening the door to a second, broader social form of domination? Yes, I think we are. I mean, that there is a possibility and a danger there. And there's therefore a reason why, thinking about democratic institutions, we should... We need to extend our thinking to include the protections against that sort of elitism. Of course, there's elitism and there's cronyism, you know, and they are quite different and need uh, different ways of dealing with them in a way. I think there are a number of, of measures. I mean, one is, I think we should have more recourse to what people call citizens' assemblies, you know, in which you get a statistically a representative sample of the people together and persuade them, you know, maybe 200, whatever, in the course of a year to think about a particular issue of legislation and to give advice on that. I mean, the Irish did that extremely well, if I can cite my own home, original home country, prior to recent referenda. And it's clear that people felt that, well, if this group, you know, which are representative of all of us, really argued that same-sex marriage was, say, one of the issues that this really was something required by our principles and our, our views and our values, uh, then that really is important, you know, and it's not just passed down from an elitist group that may not be of my type. So I think that it's a very small device, but I think that device, for example, can help to guard against elitism as such in some degree. I think what's also important, I think it's very important, maybe this is slightly different, but one of the things about the United States, I mean, it's a wonderful constitution in so many ways, but of course, it's all technology, and we can now see more clearly the problems it gives rise to. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to amend under current circumstances. But one of the things that I think was a mistake on the part of the founders was not to have a head of state who is independent of the head of government. I think uh, it's very important that you have a head of state that is seen by people as representative of the state, of us all together, and can be as like a flag, you know, something around whom we rally, even as we belong to different parties and different sort of pressure groups and different causes, and see as, as the, the basic source of unity. I think that might also guard against the sort of elitism in an indirect way. Uh, there are all sorts of measures of this kind. I think that public interest groups, you know, which should, they should in particular be very, very intent on bringing different sides of the society into their ranks, you know, and making this a matter of public recognition that this interest group is not just a public interest group, it's not just representative of an elite few, but that it, it's really open to a whole range of ordinary people. That takes a lot of work, of course, on the part of such a group. But I think measures of this kind can help the guard against uh, against elitism, which, as I say, is is probably less serious problem than cronyism, but it's still a problem. I find the point about the separation of the head of government, the head of state, to be very astute. I think prime minister's questions in Britain, which exists in different forms in some other jurisdictions as well, is a great example of this. Because you have to have some deference towards the king or the queen, but you don't owe the same deference to the prime minister because he's but the 
monarch's most humble servant. He is but uh, the head of a government. He's not the representative of the state. And that, I think, can create a healthy political culture. Very briefly, I think we've started in all kinds of implicit ways to veer into the territory of your latest book about the state. And you've been making the argument that we should think of laws, and I think more broadly as the state, as not just a constraint on liberty, but as one of the facilitating conditions of it, as what we need for it. How, very briefly, does your philosophical perspective reshape how we should think about the state? Oh dear, good question. I think that in my own thinking, and uh, I think the same is true of lots of other political philosophers, we have given too little attention to the state. We focus a lot on social justice and democratic justice, the two areas of policy we've been talking about, for example. I mean, we in this tradition, but without taking account of the actual institution called the state that's going to have to be given as a carriage of these policies. So, for example, John Rawls, the person I cited on the reflective equilibrium test, the greatest political philosopher of the 20th century by a long shot. But John Rawls, when he begins his theory of justice, says, what do we assume about the society? It's a cooperative venture for the mutual benefit of citizens. A very nice phrase, but my goodness, that's not really a characterization of the society that we exist in that can be then given carriage of policies of justice. The truth is we'll only get to a more just world, I think, and domestically, I think the same is true internationally, but putting that aside for them, we can only get there domestically insofar as the state is capable of delivering both the laws that will give the social security required for private non-domination, and non-domination vis-a-vis other people and corporations and so on, and it's only the state and the people through the state, of course, who can establish enough control over those in government to ensure that when they make laws, they make laws on the people's terms and not at their own choice. And that led me in the book on the state to talk about what are the essential features of the state, in particular a state that's not just a reign of terror, a state that gives some degree of power to its people. Even before you look at ideals of justice, what are the, as we're in escapable aspects of the state, And that's what I try to look at in that book. And it's meant to be followed up by another book, From State to Republic, which will look at how this state can be the carrier of neo-Republican policies. And kind of talking about how it can actually push an ideal like the non-domination of its citizens. Philip Pettit, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ash. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.